Welcome to Practice That, podcasts for the practice manager. Today's Wednesday, the 17th of November, 2021. I'm Ann Davis with RACGP, and with me today is Vanessa James McPhee. And she's talking to us today about employment contracts and how to identify a good contract from an excellent contract. Vanessa is the Principal Consultant and Workplace Advisor at Health Industry Employment Services. She has many years working with medical practices and is a valuable source of information and advice in the workplace and employment space. Vanessa, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you, Anne. I am very excited to be here today for my first podcast. So just a reminder to everyone that Vanessa is providing general information today and it's very important to seek specific advice for your individual situation. So let's move on to this discussion about contracts. Some practices have written employment contracts in place and some don't appear to. Is there a benefit to having a written contract? As surprising as it sounds, Anne, in Australia there is actually no legal requirement that an employment contract is written. So in fact, a contract of employment can be written, can be verbal, or a combination of the two. So the actual benefit of having a written contract is to enable the parties, the employer and the employee, to have their terms and conditions clearly set out in black and white about what their conditions of employment are. So having a written contract is an excellent tool that the parties can then refer back to, particularly if there's any confusion or uncertainty about their terms and conditions of employment. It's also an excellent reference point, particularly if there's been a a breach or a non-compliance with a policy or a term of the contract And ultimately, then the employer can simply refer back to the contract as well because it's there in writing. And that can help then assist with any performance management processes up to and including termination of employment as well. So if I reflect on our topic today, a verbal contract is good, but an excellent contract is one that is documented in writing. And I think you're right, you know, a verbal contract we don't necessarily remember those details and I might remember those details different to how you might. So it sounds like it's good advice to have a a written one. So if we think about the good contract, what are some of the key features that differentiate that good contract from having an excellent contract? Yes, so choosing the right kind of contract is a tricky question and one that I certainly encourage practices to seek advice and assistance from because the format, the tone, the detail that suits one practice might not suit another practice. Certainly in my years of drafting contracts, some practices like a more informal, relaxed tone and it still meets the legal requirements and covers off those minimum terms and conditions of employment, whereas other practices like a more formal tone. So... I always find that it's a good feature and an excellent contract is one that also reflects the nature of your practice as well. So that being said, a key feature of any contract is that it must reflect the agreement between the parties. For example, if during the offer and acceptance of employment stage, the practice agrees to pay for a staff member to attend a course 
And that course isn't actually a prerequisite for their job, but the practice has never discussed a repayment plan or a clawback clause so that if the employee leaves within a certain amount of time, they need to pay back a proportion of the cost of that clause. If that person then gets a copy of their contract and there's a clawback clause in it, well, you can imagine that person's going to be unhappy, maybe surprised that that clause is in there because it's not something that they've agreed to during those negotiation processes. That's a really good point that, yeah, anything that's discussed during that negotiation does need to be reflected in the contract. Yeah, definitely. So it's important that the contract itself reflect those terms and conditions of employment and ensure that, particularly if you're reissuing a contract to somebody, understand that that new contract does in fact reflect the true terms and conditions of that position that they have as well. Another feature of an excellent contract is one that's written in plain English and is clearly understood by the end user. There are plenty of contracts out there that use legal jargon, old-fashioned words like herewith, which make the contract look fancy and look important. But in my view, it detracts from the messaging and the purpose of the contract, which is to clearly articulate to the employee what their key terms and conditions of employment are. I was just reflecting on the use of the old-fashioned words. I'm not even sure that I could tell you what herewith actually means. And I'm thinking that in a contract, it may create a little bit of ambiguity and confusion. It can. And I think that's, you know, one of the things with contracts, particularly if there's disputes around a clause in a contract, is whether the phrasing or the drafting of the clause has created some confusion and ambiguity. And I think, in my view, using plain English or or language that we are familiar with and we use in an everyday environment is important to help the employee to actually understand what's included and what's not included and also helps the employer understand what's included and what's not included as well. So both parties need to have that clear understanding. Another factor that I think is important is the way in which the contract is ordered um, or sequenced in relation to the clauses. My personal preference, and, and one which I think distinguishes a good contract from an excellent contract, is that the sequencing of clauses reflects the employment relationship as well. So by that I mean at the beginning of the contract, you'll see clauses that relate to the commencement of somebody's employment with you. And then in the middle of the contract, you'll see other terms that relate to matters that are frequently occurring within the employment relationship, like getting paid, like complying with policy and procedures, workplace health and safety obligations and other employee obligations. And then towards the end of the contract, you would have clauses that relate to employment coming to an end, such as a termination clause or a post-employment restraint clause. So my view is that a excellent contract reflects the employment relationship, whereas a bad contract you know, is one that sort of has clauses that are mixed up and there's no clear flow, again, for the reader. That's a great way of thinking about it. It means that it's got a logical framework. Yeah, most definitely. 
Yeah, so certainly at its most basic, I think every employment contract, in my opinion, should at least have uh, the names of the employer and the employee. Any conditions of employment? So what are some of the must-haves and if you don't have, then your employment could be brought to an end? So some of those include like valid working rights to be able to validly work here in Australia. Others might be a mandatory health requirement clause to be vaccinated. It might also include some of the registration licences that, say, a, a nurse may have as well. So set out right at the onset that these are some conditions of employment and if you don't have them, your employment is potentially going to come to an end. We want the people to know what day they're starting. We want them to know whether they're full-time, part-time or casual. We want them to know what position they're being employed in and what those key duties are, what their classification level is, if a modern award applies, where they're going to work, what their hours of work are, details about their pay. That's what the staff member wants to know. How much am I getting paid? When am I getting paid? Maybe a summary of their leave provisions and termination, as I've mentioned. There's some really good features of an excellent contract. And certainly because we're in the health space, two other uh, excellent clauses to include uh, would relate to patient records belonging to the practice and, of course, confidentiality and privacy. And you've mentioned the modern awards. Do the modern rewards require certain pieces of information to be included in the contract? They certainly do. So an excellent contract complies with both the modern award, if one applies, and also the relevant legislation. So if we think about the legislation itself, you know, the the key piece of workplace law that we refer to is the Fair Work Act, uh, which includes the National Employment Standards. So it's important that any good or excellent contract uh, complies with the National Employment Standards and that the contracts themselves are not discriminatory in any way. And so similarly, when we think about a modern award, the modern awards themselves include terms in the modern award that require information to be recorded in writing. And the best way that we can do that is to include that in an employment contract. So, for example, both the Health Professional and Support Services Award and the Nurses Award require certain pieces of information to be confirmed in writing, such as the person's employment basis, so are they full-time, part-time, casual, and what their classification level is. So another feature of an excellent contract versus a bad one is that an excellent contract doesn't just copy and paste the terms of the award into the contract. Because the last thing a practice wants is to incorporate a clause of the award into the contract, particularly if the award changes. So if the contract itself says that an employee is to be paid, for example, double time and a half on a Saturday, and the award changes to 200% on a Saturday, then contractually the practice is obliged to continue to pay that higher penalty rate. So that's really important that don't cut and paste, make sure that you just refer to the conditions of the award. 
Exactly, and that's why many of our awards essentially say in accordance with the award as opposed to the cutting and pasting. It's all about protecting the practice and the employer and that's what makes an excellent contract as well. So just in recent times, a lot of managers have been saying that recruitment of new staff is really quite challenging. And in some cases, staff are leaving the practice, starting at a new practice, and then encouraging their colleagues from their old practice to join them. Is it legal for practices to include post-employment restraints in that contract? That's a really good question, Anne. And restraints of trade are typically included in employment contracts to protect an employer's trade secrets, confidential information, customer details and connections. And in our case, that connection that people have with patients and the connections that people have with staff, their colleagues. And those restraint of trade clauses essentially restrict an employee's activities after they've left their employment at the practice. So the inclusion of a post-employment restraint is legal. The thing we need to consider, though, is the underlying principle with any post-employment restraint is that it must legitimately protect the interests of the practice and not unreasonably restrict the departing employee's ability to earn a living. So we see and draft restraints that are designed to prevent an employee from contacting the practice's patients for the purposes of enticing that particular patient away from the practice and then to the new practice or to see a new practitioner. The restraints can also prevent someone from setting up a business in close proximity with the practice or working at a practice that's in competition or direct competition with that practice that they've just left. And poaching employees from their old practice to the new practice. So you can certainly include those post-restraint obligations in an employment contract. The key thing, as I mentioned, is that those restraints need to be reasonable. And what we might consider to be reasonable, the courts might not actually consider to be reasonable from an objective point of view. And at times when matters have actually gone to the courts, where they've been challenging the reasonableness of a restraint provision, the courts have quite matter-of-factly reminded employers and legal practitioners that it's only really the courts can make those decisions. So with that in mind, and certainly when we're drafting restraint provisions, we do take into consideration factors about the nature of the work that the person will be doing, what involvement they've had in the negotiation process and importantly the level or the extent of the restraint and how long that restraint will apply so the restraint period and also the restraint area so the broader the duration and the broader the geographical area the less likely that the restraint will be reasonable. So when I reflect on a bad contract and what a restraint clause will look like in a bad contract, essentially that sort of clause will restrict the person from being able to earn an income because it restricts them from performing work that they're actually skilled and trained to do 
for a long period of time in a wide geographical area. So I have seen some contracts that actually prevent the person from working in any healthcare or medical setting for a period of 12 months in Australia. So if you've got a medical receptionist and that's what they're trained to do and the restraint provision prevents them from doing that, it will most definitely be unreasonable and therefore void and invalid and the practice cannot rely on it. Whereas an excellent contract will actually err on the side of having a restraint clause that takes into consideration the person's position, how connected they've been to patients and what influence they may have in the practice and will have the drafting of that clause with what we refer to as a waterfall or cascading approach. So a waterfall or cascading approach essentially reduces the risk of the clause being considered to be void or unreasonable because certain components of that cascading clause can be crossed out or by the courts itself. So, for example, if we say that for a period of 12 months or if that's found to be unreasonable, six months or if that's found to be unreasonable, three months, if the courts find that the 12-month restraint period is unreasonable, they can essentially cross that out and the default position then is six months. So it's a way to protect the practice from ensuring that the clause can still be valid and continue to protect them. And with that in mind, as I mentioned earlier, an excellent contract that does feature a post-employment restraint clause has it tailored to reflect the position So it makes sense that a more detailed restraint clause will apply to a practice manager who's got greater influence over the way in which a practice runs. They may have access to processes and protocols, intellectual property. They may also have a certain level of influence over people wanting to continue to work with that person. So it makes sense for them to have a more detailed restraint as opposed to a junior receptionist, where it makes sense for a junior receptionist in their particular contract to have a post-employment clause that limits their ability to encourage their former co-workers to come and work at their new practice. So that would be reasonable. Vanessa, you've really walked us through some really key information in relation to employment contracts, really quite valuable. And I understand that, you know, some practice managers may not have an advisor that they can use for assisting them with their contracts. So what we'll do is we'll make sure that we put the links to your service in the show notes so that people can know that you have that service available as well. Thank you so much for talking with us today. Excellent. Thanks, Anna. It's been a great pleasure talking with yourself and to all the listeners. Thank you. That brings us to the end of this podcast. Till next time, goodbye and be kind to each other.